There's a story in the news today which in some ways has a bearing on my author and the book we are doing. Elves have been blamed for a series of accidents on roadworks in Iceland. It seems that an elf rock was accidentally covered. Now, the last book my author wrote was set in Iceland. Her latest book is set in Ireland and picks up on this notion of superstition and the other. The author is Hannah Kent. Her last book was Burial Rites and her current work is The Good People. So, Hannah, welcome back to 3CR. Oh, thank you for having me. Jan interviewed you last time, I believe. She did, yeah. Indeed. Now, what is it about this article? Was it serendipity, fate? Was it written in the stars? Or was there some other force at work that had this article that was so appropriate <laughs> for today's interview? There's no such thing as coincidences. <laughs> no such thing as coincidences. So we're going to get into that world of superstition a little later down the track uh, because it's such a fascinating thing. You seem to have or be absorbed by it or fascinated by it. Yes, yeah, certainly fascinated, absolutely. And I think I always have been. Right. Well... We're going to get into the setting first. Uh, now, Ireland, 1825. You seem to like this notion of the past and historical settings, uh, first and foremost. What was the attraction of Ireland? It seems like there's some sort of design here, but actually it was more coincidence than anything. I um, Many years ago, I was researching burial rites, and a lot of my sources were in Icelandic, and it required really laborious, often tedious translation. And one afternoon, I decided to give myself the afternoon off and maybe look in some old British newspapers to see if they had mentioned the events I was looking for. And they didn't, but as I was going through these old papers, I came across this extraordinary article about a woman called Nance Roach who was described as being of advanced age who had been accused of a very serious crime. I was, I'd been reading all about crimes all day so it wasn't exactly that which took my attention but her defence was incredible. She said that her victim basically was not a human and she had never actually been trying to harm it. She was instead trying to return it. She said that she was trying to cure a child who was basically believed to be a changeling. And I was so struck by it that I immediately wrote it down and that's why I ended up doing something set in a similar time in a, in a similar Set in a similar locale. time, that's the first thing. I mean, you've gone from Icelandic and you've got a wee bit of the Gaelic here that we've, you've <laughs> got to get your head around, uh, the other thing. But also the atmosphere is claustrophobic. Uh, wet, cold, impoverished. December arrived and bled the days of sunlight while the nights grew bitter, wind rattled. The water that pooled outside beneath the doorstep was tight with ice by morning and starlings lit upon the thatched roofs of the valley, circling the smoking chimney holes for warmth. Claustrophobic. In both burial rites and uh, the good people. Mm. What's the fascination with that? I think there's something, obviously, writing about these kinds of stories that lends itself to a particular wintry atmosphere. So there's some part of it which is just simply trying to craft a novel and give as much feeling as possible into the landscape. But uh, certainly I think claustrophobia... You know, it's one thing, I think we have a very sort of dislocated relationship to nature and the climate and weather and seasons sometimes now in our modern world. And when you write in a historical setting, you need to try and inhabit the way in which the weather really shapes your days. Well, it's it's the weather, it's the isolation mm. of the community as well and what in fact influences them, uh, forces them to think the way they are. They are almost coming out of the earth in some ways. They're their houses are made of mud mm -hmm. as well. Uh, they're barefooted. Yep. 
into the squelch of the of the Irish bog, so to speak. <laughs> but also then, if we're going into setting, we've got all this notion of folklore and the rumours and the way people behave in such settings. Mm. Would you like to talk to that? Well, this, I think, was the real, really what drew me to write this particular book, was this curiosity about old folk traditions, fairy lore, these sort of belief systems that were really just part of the fabric of everyday life. It was an acknowledgement and a way of dealing often with the very much inexplicable, the inexplicable occurrences, but also the strange coincidences and patterns that people would read amongst weather and events and your own life and the circumstances circumstances of well, seasonality of, of cows coming into butter, but then also strange natural occurrences as well. So, And having to explain events that are going on without exactly. any of the scientific knowledge we Absolutely. have today. I mean, that gets us back to the article in The Age this morning where uh, one of the um, administ- men in the administration, the Road and Coastal Administration in Iceland, he said that the law around elves has to do with explaining tough living conditions. Mm. Modern scholars believe that this was one of the uh, one of the ways the Icelanders tried to control their destinies in a land and climate that was incredibly harsh and unforgiving. Uh, what happened there is a remnant of the ancient belief that the homes of the hidden people were sacred. Mm. So that they they worked up these beliefs to account for. Uh, why cows were going dry, why um, there were uh, miscarriages and all of these sorts of things because they didn't have any other understanding of it's it. exactly right you see the fairies and fairy lore and elves in Iceland as well they're always invoked when you are faced with the inexplicable or things that cannot that, that are outside of your control and I think in many ways having these lore around them these rituals these ways in which you could protect yourself gave yourself a sense of agency when really you were completely disempowered and everything was out of your hands well we have now our characters who are part of this uh, disempowered uh, populace of this little uh, isolated community. We have Nora, and uh, immediately we're struck with uh, the challenges uh, Nora has in her life. Nora's first thought when they brought her the body was that it could not be her husband's. For one long moment, she stared at the men bearing Martin's weight on their sweating shoulders, standing in the gasping cold, and believed that the body was nothing but a cruel imitation, a changeling, brutal in its likeness. Martin's mouth and eyes were open, but his head slumped on his chest and there was no quick in him. Nora's got the challenge of losing her husband. Mm. Why is that so important in terms of the role of men and women in this community? Well, I think for for women, historically speaking, and you see this to greater and lesser extents in various cultures, you you really came to rely on your kinship networks as a means of survival, particularly within a community. And of course, you know, your husband was your, I guess, your relationship or your connection to the, I guess, a lot of decision making, local authorities, all these sorts of things came via your husband's role. And also then... um, um, Nora's got the challenge of looking after, now, anglicised Michael, but it's pronounced? Michal. 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 Okay. But we have a little difficulty with Michal. What's that? Yes. Yeah, so Nora finds herself in this very uncomfortable and uh, strange, I guess, position where she has she's lost her daughter before she loses her husband. So she's had two deaths in the family in, in almost quite quick succession. And when her daughter passed away, she was left caring for the four-year-old grandson. Now, she met this grandson when he was about 18 months old and he was beginning to acquire language and he was walking and talking and interacting like any other sort of usual child. 
But by the time he comes into Nora's care, and Martin's also her husband while he's still alive, he's drastically altered. He's unable to speak. He cannot walk. He moves in strange ways. He's forever uneasy and cantankerous and screaming Screaming, the whole night through. This completely changed child. And she's uh, aware that he is so strange and so different that the local community might see in his difference evidence of supernatural interference. And so uh, Nora hides him away to begin with. There's never an explanation for what has occurred. Does it matter that we never know the... Well, modern readers might be looking for a a clinical, logical explanation, Mm. but it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. And I was quite careful in writing the book not to give Michal symptoms, something which we could too easily read into, I guess, our understanding of modern disability Hmm. or illness or disease. I wanted, I guess, the readers to understand Nora's confusion and her, just her, I guess complete inability to work out what had gone wrong. Because he was a normal child at 18 months, starting to talk, walking, interacting, and all of a sudden something has changed Mm -hmm. in his development. And how do we explain that? It's, it's, well, the inexplicable starts. Um, And also then the grief uh, layering over that, her husband, um, who died at the crossroads. Exactly. Another another place, historically speaking, quite an ancient understanding, the crossroads being a place of, uh, I guess, sometimes a sacred ground, but also a, a place where the devil would appear to people or where the fairies might try to confuse you. So there's a fear also of the rumour and innuendo about mm. the reasons for this, which, again, occurs in a, in a closed community. You know, Scarborough sort of comments and rumours and mm-hmm. such like that add to this um, notion, well, adds to the distress, mm-hmm. but also then the need for a cure, so to speak, or a finding a way out of that problem. Yeah, certainly distress as well, because back then, if you had a child who had an affliction, it might be a slight paralysis, it might be, say, for instance, a hair lip. The reason why we call it a hair lip is because it's based on the old superstition or old belief that a pregnant woman had come across, had met with a hare in the road. And there had been, hares, of course, are, are known for being these magical creatures. They've had a long association with witchcraft. And so a change had occurred in your child. And the mother had failed her her to-be-born child by, I guess, become, letting herself be vulnerable to these outside influences. And you see the same. If a pregnant woman allowed herself to be involved in the autumn slaughter or had walked past a graveyard and hadn't hadn't done enough precautions, hadn't said a prayer, hadn't crossed herself, she was at fault for her child's, what we would understand to be, disability. And even today, some of these sort of superstitions Mm. still hold. I'm I'm thinking about the world of theatre, which uh, Jan and I have been involved in, and uh, you can't um, sort of quote from the great Shakespearean play set in Scotland no. backstage. The Scottish um, play. The Scottish play. Um, you can't whistle backstage. And for some of these, there are reasons. Mm. So they say it's the sound of the fire curtain coming in for whistling. Mm. But nobody quite knows why one can't mention the Scottish play. <laughs> but we'll get back to the Scottish play if we get time. Another of these characters who helps people through these concerns is Nance. Um, Sometimes as she guided babies from their mothers and into the world, she sensed what their life would be like and sometimes the things she sensed frightened her. She remembered delivering a child whose mother had cursed him in her pain and fear and she had sensed a darkness fall on him. She cleaned and swaddled the infant, then later, as the mother slept, crushed a worm in his palm for protection. (laughs) So Nance has... um, What... uh, uh, 
the foresight or the, the, the an extra sight? How would you describe Nance? Nance is one of these people who did exist within Irish communities, particularly rural communities, um, sometimes long into the to the twentieth century, and you still hear of these people who occupy similar roles. These were people who were often different, uh, and people saw in their difference um, evidence of their having been with the fairies or their ability to talk with them, or the fact they sort of stood in, but they stood in that liminal space between the known ordinary world and also the supernatural world. And so they were feared, but they were also respected. But they were needed. They were necessary. They were. Because in one way... um, Nance knew that the only reason they had allowed her this damp cabin between mountain and wood and river for 20-odd years was because she stood in for that which was not and could not be understood. She was the gatekeeper Mm. at the edge of the world. And you would have these gatekeepers. They were known locally as fairy doctors or doctresses, both men and women, and they were almost like a sort of a wise person within the community who you would resort to when the priest couldn't help you or the doctor couldn't help you. You were faced with these inexplicable changes or illnesses and you would need to go to someone who could talk with the fairies who most likely caused it. Well, I mean, there's a logical and rational explanation. Even before doctors and... and, uh, and priests, there was herb law. So these herbs actually helped you. They facilitated cures and all sorts of things. So there is a sort of natural remedy that people resorted to. Well, this is the fascinating thing. You you look at a lot of the herbs. I did a lot of research into the herbs that were commonly used and a lot of them, like St. John's wort or thyme for a cough, we still use these to these days. Um, Even the more sort of dangerous plants like foxglove, it contains digitalis, which is used in arrhythmia and so forth. Mm. However, it was also the idea that you would go to someone who might give you herbs, but they also might prescribe you seven days of essentially bed rest, which of course isn't going to do you any harm. So but there was always always charms and there was a certain placebo effect of having a say a charm written on a piece of paper that you could fold and, and keep against your skin mm. so it was it was an i guess an attractive combination of all of these things yes yeah, so a blend to help people through what they didn't understand Absolutely. there was a, a certain well logic to it i mean aspirin comes from the willow tree there you go so there but we now scientifically understand that mm-hmm. people had a sort of knowledge Mm. um, about their environment that we've lost. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was necessary, used to help them through. But yes, as you say, a little bit more of superstition, the placebo effect, to uh, assist uh, the remedy, so to speak. Mm. And it's easy to believe and to fall into Mm -hmm. those traps of um, the beliefs, which gets us into this whole world of superstition the logic behind folklore? I mean, part of what you've said in um, the acknowledgements afterwards was to try and provide a sort of um, logical, um, what would you say, where was it? Um, Irish fairy law uh, was and remains a deeply complex and ambiguous system of folk belief. There is little that is twee or childish about it, um, etc. So there's... Um, in writing this work of fiction, I have sought to portray fairy and folk belief as part of the fabric of everyday rural 19th century Irish life rather than as anomalous. So it was part and parcel of their whole fabric of being. 
It was, absolutely. There was this understanding, really, that the world was in secret sympathy with itself. And people talk now, it's, it's known as sympathetic magic. And this was basically the premise that was underlying a lot of rituals, a lot of herbal remedies, but a lot of other rituals which might involve prayer and so forth, or, or things you might do to create a certain consequence, both for good and evil. So for instance, um, say that you had a child who had jaundice, what we now understand to be jaundice. They had a very peculiar yellow colour. Well, there is goodness from the sun. Surely the sun makes yellow primrose yellow. If there is yellow primrose, yellow will act on yellow. So let's give the child a tincture of primrose and surely that will help. And sometimes this did help. Um, and so there was enough evidence or enough belief that, yeah, okay, this is how we operate. There's a, if you've, you have a red flower to work on the colour of a particular rash or flowers which were associated with the fairies, such as foxglove, mainly because it was unpredictable and people, didn't, people knew it was efficacious but they didn't know in what quantities and sometimes it could be dangerous, as it still is or slightly poisonous, you would use foxglove for things that you might believe to be a fairy affliction. But there were also other practices as well. So mm. there's the herbal, but then there were the, just the other actions. I mean, spilling a little bit of milk on the threshold mm. for the for the good people, yeah. uh, etc. Um, well... Do we still throw salt over our left shoulder? Absolutely. To- and this and this comes from the understanding that, you know, there were things that fairies were known to like and things that fairies didn't like. Fairies like new milk, bee stings milk, the first milk after a cow has given birth. So you would to placate them and almost as a sort of a precaution, you would go out to the wa- lone whitethorn tree in the field where you knew the fairies lived and pour the bee stings there for them as a kind of offering. But similarly, you knew that fairies didn't like salt. So that's why we still throw the salt over our shoulder. They didn't like fire. They didn't like iron. People used to guard their cradles with an iron poker over the top to stop the fairies from coming for the child. And that's why you've got that scene where the the poker is over Michal Michal's crib, um, etc. Et and, mm. and that notion of iron. So it, it's all in there. But then the beliefs sort of cross over. So for example, the mark of St. Bridget's passing uh, would you like to explain that one? Yeah, so there's um, you see this a lot, I think, with what were originally quite pagan ancient rituals or uh, that pagan fairy logic, I suppose, uh, which is very different to what, I guess, the rationality that we privilege being scientific in our modern day. It very much had its own sort of common sense to it, its own reason. You see that like with many things, kind of being amalgamated with with Catholicism. So certain old seasonal days, the transition of seasons, suddenly have a saint's name rather than being known as their previous name. So with St. Bridget's, um, you would have, for instance, a cross that you would make on St. Bridget's Eve. You would go and find some green rushes and you couldn't set a knife to them. You had to pull them and then you would weave them into a cross and set that on the lintel of your house and that would preserve the house from fire and the fairies for the rest of the year. And you go to Ireland. I was in an old thatched island, um, old thatched house actually, and I looked up at the rafters and you could see the years and years of St. Bridget's crosses all blackened by soot over the years but still there, still protecting the house. So pagan belief. And Christian belief, mm. and it comes to a head when uh, Nance and uh, Father Healy go toe to toe, so to speak. <laughs> uh, Father Healy um, is telling Nance off. Nance has been uh, sort of gutting eels, and her hands are covered uh, in blood. Look at you, red-handed as the devil. 
You know as well as I that no one is bothered by a bit of eel catching. Nance, go on and catch as many eels as you like. You're right, is no bother to anyone who knows. But don't be stealing the blood out of beasts and don't be putting the fear on the valley with your pussy. How do you pronounce the word? Peshogs. Peshogs. Don't be putting the fear on the valley with your peshogs. Nance laughed in exasperation. Tis not a thing to be laughing at. The priest took a step towards her. Nance, I tell you, my patience is mighty thin with you. If you keen... If if keening is unholy, then laying mountain ash and giving herbs to women in a delicate state to earn your place here is devilry. Father, Nance, I warned you to be a handy woman to those who need and no more. His face softened. If bittersweet be a cure, and the death of Bridget Lynch's baby the work of God, then no more about it. But, he pointed a finger of warning at her chest, don't be laying curses. Nance threw her hands up in the air. Father, I have no hand in pishogs. I have no hand in curses. Just a hand in in with them that does be in it. I know it is your mouth that's been spreading the word about fairies. Father Healy turned his palms upward in ecclesiastic habit. Nor lay come to me begging magic, gabbling superstition, saying the poor boy she has is in her cure is the talk of the valley, that he's fairy. That wouldn't be your worm in her ear, would it, Nance? Sure, folk will pay handsome when they're desperate. No harm in claiming cures when they bring food and turf to the door. Nance felt anger rising. The boy is not natural. And you are the doctor to the unnatural. I am. And you plan to cure him? I plan to banish the fairy and bring Nora Lay back to her grandson. Father Healy gave her a look of weary frustration. Twould be a kindness for you to tell Nora Lay that she has a right to care for the cretin and to expect nothing more. There's no kindness in helplessness, Father. But there is in false hope. The priest sighed and looked out to the valley. People are suffering, Nance. Yes, Father. So... You've got this clash of Christianity and mm. paganism, but also this pleading for help in some ways because um, the priest, he's a cretin. You've got to just deal with it. Mm. The doctor has been previously, can't do anything. So where do you turn? Exactly. You, um, it's, it's interesting because for many, many years um, there was a proper sort of uh, this, these old beliefs, the belief in the fairies and, and Catholicism wasn't seen as separate or you know, in, in opposition to each other. They were very much the one and the same thing, part of the same world, the same belief outlook. Because Father Healy later pours holy water mm. on a curse a that's been left at a doorstep. So mm. it's, it's almost the same, the, the, that sort of... Um, superstition uh, there with with the Christian belief and and with the um, with the, the sort of supernatural uh, undertakings of Nance, but now we were talking about the Great Scottish Play. Have you made a reference to the Great Scottish Play in this book? <laughs> um, I'm not sure. You might have to remind me, actually. You, me, and the girl. So they're taking Mary, who I don't think we got into. Mary was brought into the house uh, to help. She's a 14-year-old girl. Mm. We've got Nora and, and Nance, and they're looking for ways of curing her. And what they do is they take him to the river. But you, me, and the girl, three women at the place where three running rivers meet for three mornings in a row. We will all of us fast. We take the changeling before sunrise to the flesk, three times before sunrise for three mornings. And when you return home on the last morning, the changeling will be gone. And perhaps you will find Michael restored to you. Maybe it is that the good people will have returned him to you. The fairy will be gone. We'll be going to the water. Boundary water. We'll duck the fairy in water with the power in it. A mighty water. Water. Nora stared at Nance gaping. Then, as if deciding, she pressed her lips together and nodded hurriedly. When will we begin? Nance hesitated. Tis only now March. The water will be cold. When will we begin? Three? <laughs> thrice times three? 
was that deliberate? Yes, of course. Um, you know, three is a very symbolic number, particularly in Irish law. Um, there was a, there's always a, a place of power, a sacred place, wherever three waterways meet, wherever three boundaries meet. And this was certainly in a historical context where they decided to work a lot of their magic. There were there were places of power within the landscape, and you found it at the power of three. And then, of course, this was something that was later appropriated by the church and said to represent the Holy Trinity. But this idea of three coming together is very, very old. You find it everywhere, actually. Including in the Great Show. Mm. <laughs> but also, when will we three meet again? When will mm. we meet? When will we begin? That must have been entirely subconscious. I don't remember uh, thinking of the play with that. I'm sorry, I think I've poached some lines. Well, you're, no, you haven't. Po- well, <laughs> Shakespeare did it. There we um, go. Right, left and centre. It's he, an honourable tradition. It, it is. <laughs> you just, as long as you can get away with it. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's the main thing. No, but it brings into that notion. Whereas, But that's where... Um, in in some ways, Shakespeare started with that mm. uh, superstition um, and that that whole other world. But what you've done in many ways is show the development and almost a logical progression towards that end, because we have uh, the women going to the river naked, mm. uh, etc., trying to find a cure. But it's been a progression. Because Nance's reputation is at stake. Uh, Nora is desperate for a cure. Uh, Mary has to go along with it. And so it's sort of fallen that way rather than, you know, this cursed world that exists Mm. there. It's just this natural progression Mm. in many ways. And that was a great challenge, I think, in writing this novel, was trying to inhabit that logic and also to to make sure that what is essentially quite a dramatic conclusion, and we won't say what it is, but... Of course not. Um, you know, it was, seemed to be inevitable. And I think that's the that was, for me, the real challenge in trying to create a narrative arc where you have the slow intensifying of need and, and where the fairy law starts to take on more and more importance. But as a reader, you understand that, of course it is. You, you understand where these women are coming from and they're not simply portrayed as ignorant. Well, that that desperation is what's driving them, Mm. the sense of loss uh, that that continues on. And and what do you do in such circumstances when every other avenue fails? Mm -hmm. You've got to take comfort in an imaginary world almost, Mm. which explains superstition. Um, There's also uh, lots of other sayings and delightful things that occur um, in this novel. If if you don't know the way, walk slowly. (laughs) For what cannot be cured, patience is best. I think you've got to read them with um, an Irish accent. Oh, yeah, definitely. The true nature of a cat shows in the way it uses its claws. Uh, so, where did you come across all of these? Oh, I love proverbs. I actually spend a lot of time trying to find them, of the, find proverbs of that particular era um, when I'm doing my research because mm. I think they offer a fantastic insight into um, what people were, I guess, what they, what knowledge they wanted to pass on, but also their sense of humour. Yeah, that that atmosphere, yeah. the way they communicated, that mm-hmm. whole life. I mean, I keep remembering one of my father's sayings um, when he breaks wind. Uh, his his line is better an empty house than a bad tenant. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a way of explaining, excusing. It's comic. Yeah. It's um, well a euphemism for for getting away with something that's socially unacceptable. It yeah. it has that those proverbs have that sort of power to give an insight into character or to the humour or or all of those sorts of things. Absolutely. So, yeah. Now, the similarities then um, between the two books um, is deliberate in many ways in terms of it seems there's death 
that mm. keeps recurring. Um, religion is seems to be uh, an overriding sort of path you're pursuing. Mm. Um, is that a conscious decision or? Uh-huh. I'm certainly interested in these things, but I think it's actually again comes down to the coincidence of finding this particular article. And you know, I'm looking, I'm looking essentially at the stories of women who have committed crime. And inevitably, you need a priest because you need a priest, you need a judge, you need a doctor. This is the dark trinity of patriarchal influence in the lives of these sorts of women who, you know, deviate from accepted societal roles. So part of it's just, I guess, being truthful to history. Uh, I am interested, I think, more generally in outsiders and the character of the outsider. Uh, I think, uh, I'm not sure why this is, but I think there's this is where you get a lot of wonderful stories. And I think writing historical fiction, you know, you can read, you can research endlessly and you come across all sorts of fascinating stories. But I'm always left with a lingering sense that there are certain stories which have not been told or have at least been misrepresented. How much time goes into the research? Because oh, there's a lot a, of time. Yeah. Just looking at that whole fabric of the Mm. world that you've created. Hannah, we are unfortunately going to have to end the interview. The uh, (laughs) Ruminations is dying to come in. Uh, We could have asked about killing your darlings, but we won't have time. But um, what is killing your darlings, just for the listener? Kill Your Darlings, well, it's both an, uh, an aphorism attributed to Faulkner and it's also the magazine that uh, I co-founded and run here in Melbourne. And so you can look that up online for those that are interested. But the book is The Good People. Pan Macmillan have been responsible for bringing it out. It's Hannah Kent's second novel after burial rites. So, Hannah, thank you very much for coming in today. Thank you for having me.